Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Last week we got off on a long, important discussion in some eyes, a tangent in others, um, about the um, way to say the Amida with or without Kedusha, individual versus communal, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to review that unless someone has a burning question that I have to, because I'd rather talk about this week what I planned to talk about last week, which was the sort of conceptual foundation of this blessing, the third blessing of the Amidah, and what holiness means and what it means when we're saying this bracha. So are there any, are there any, uh, I, I really don't mind if there are any um, questions or comments left over from last time that you felt didn't get addressed. Other and uh, Anything other than, could you please go over the whole thing all over again? That I will not do. Right. Okay. <laughs> the, the answer is always ask your local rabbi. Uh-huh. All right. So um, I don't have uh, R.C. Dewar in front of me. Can someone just tell me what page we're on? Tell us what page we're on. 36. Ha- Say again? 36. 36 in one of the version, in one of the C. Dureen, right? In the Slim Shalom. In the Slim. And in the Sim? Uh, what would that be? That would be, uh, that would be one, uh, sorry, 106. Okay, 36, 106. So this very short blessing, especially compared to the first and second brachot, which were pretty expanded relative to this, okay? So we have Atakadosh, you are holy, or you are kadosh, which we usually translate as holy. Vishimcha kadosh, your name is holy. Ukdoshim bechol yom yahalalucha selah, and the holy ones every day praise you. And then in some Sephardic Sidurim is added the line, Ki el melech gadol v'kadosh ata, for you are the uh, holy um, king, deity and monarch, deity and sovereign, el melech. Great. You are the great sacred deity and monarch. Baruch ata Hashem ha'el ha'kadosh. Blessed are you, God. Um the uh, Kadosh deity. Um, and as you, and people will remember that in, um, during the 10 days of penitence between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we changed that blessing to Hamparach HaTashem HaMelech HaKadosh, right? Rather than the sacred deity, the sacred sovereign. And that is because there are various changes in the 10 days of Tshuva, um, um, where we bring in the concept of God's malchut or sovereignty. This is not the only one that's changed. Okay. But we're just going to stick with Hayala Kadosh. So you are holy. Your name is holy. The holy ones praise you every day. Blessed are you, holy God. So on the one hand, very straightforward. On the other hand, because these are value concepts, they're, they're not straightforward. Um, Let's start from the end, near the end. Ukdoshim bechol yom the holy ones every day praise you. Who is that referring to? Who are the holy ones? Terry, you're muted. 
or you, you, you're not muted, but you, we, I didn't hear you. Angels. The angels. So, and why does that make sense in this context, Terry? Why are we bringing up, why might we bring up the angels? Cause, cause what do we bring, what do we mention in the expanded form of the Kedusha when we are saying it communally and publicly? Terry, go ahead. Make I don't clear. know. It's Tva'ot. I, I, it's. Right. It's, we, we talk about the angels and what do the angels do? We say in Kedusha, we're going to praise you just like they do. They say, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. They say, Baruch, Hashem, Im, Komo. So we are enacting, um, a version on earth of what in the, uh, prophets prophetic vision the angels are doing on high. So we've mentioned the angels, right? So we say, uh, you are holy. Your name is holy. And those holy angels who we just talked about praise you every day. Okay. So that's one possibility. What's the other possibility about who the holy ones are? Pious people. Us. Uh, Okay, or humans, us, right? Which we also mentioned in the Kedusha, because in Kedusha we say, Nikadesh Echimcha Ba'olam, Keshem Shemakdishimotavishimarom. We will sanctify your name in the, uh, on this plane, just as they sanctify your name up above. The people on the podcast can't see that I'm pointing with my fingers, right? This plane and the up above plane. Right. So we're going to praise you. What, we're, what are we doing in the Kedusha? We are sanctifying your name. Again, we're going to talk about like, what does that mean to sanctify God's name? Right. But we're doing it down below just uh, or here, just as they're doing it in the heavens. So in the Kedusha, we are joining with the angels or imitating the angels. So the Kedoshim could be us. Okay. In other words, one po- another possibility is that those who are sanctifying, meaning declaring God to be holy, are themselves holy. So it's either the angels or humans, or of course, both, right? Meaning that those are not mutually exclusive. And what was the author of that line thinking? The author of that line might have been thinking one, might have been thinking the other, might have been thinking both. Okay. Um, and I'm honestly not entirely sure what the shot, the, you know, I, I, I can't say it's obvious what the shot is, the simple obvious meaning. Did the author clearly mean the angels or did the author clearly mean, uh, B'nai Israel sanctifying God's name? Not clear to me. Or did the author clearly mean both? Don't know. Okay. So let's start by talking about Atakadosh, you are holy. Um, what does holy mean? I'm, I'm asking what seems like an obvious question. But when you say this line, what does that mean? When we say God is holy, by the way, we'll talk about that. But then when we say, what, what, what does it mean when we say God's name is holy? That's a different thing, too. Okay. And why we would refer to either the angels or to us as the holy ones. That's another thing also. So we're going to talk about all those things. So what do we mean when we say God is holy? Not a rhetorical question distinct or separate in some extraordinary special way good so you you said a simple thing and then a bigger thing right the simple thing is different distinct or separate okay uh, i i change it to different but separate not in some like you know i had six cherries and i moved one cherry and i made it separate but in some very extraordinary way do you want to say any more about the extraordinary way part joanna 
You don't have to, but I I I don't know that I have okay. the words right now. Okay, got it. Good. Thank you. Other thoughts when we say God is holy or something else is holy or this place is holy or this experience is holy or I met a person who I thought was holy. You know, we've all said something like that in our lives, probably all of those things. What did we mean by that? I think there's an ethical component to that. Go ahead. Just when I think of it, it's it's um, someone that does does right. You have some some concept of right and righteousness as part of that. Okay, which we which we do attribute to God, correct? As being God of very often words that are linked to God are tzedek, righteousness, mishpat, justice or fairness, right? And and we talk about we are supposed to do these things, humans are supposed to, because this is one way in which we are supposed to imitate God, right? Okay, good. All right, other thoughts? There's a human component of it, of of requiring somehow to declare something to be holy. Is grape juice or wine inherently holy? No, but it becomes holy and sanctified when I so happen to use it to do something special on Friday night. Right. So you're raising it. You're you're making a statement. But I, I just want to say the, the statement implies an interesting question, which is, are things intrinsically holy or are things what, whatever holiness means? Are things intrinsically holy or are they holy because we perceive them as holy or label them as holy? It's a complicated question, because I think. Classical theology would say, will say, would say, well, God is holy, whether or not you think God is holy. That doesn't depend on human declaration. Or maybe not. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Good. Other thoughts. What does it mean to be holy? Have you ever been in a place that you felt was holy? Have you ever met a person who you felt was holy? Have you ever experienced an experience that you felt was holy? And for any of those things, what would make, what would have made you use the word holy as opposed to amazing or extraordinary or some other term, some other term of uniqueness and appreciation? Letting people contemplate here. The tape didn't get stopped. People listening in podcast land, people are contemplating. I can hear the gears turning. <laughs> Terry. Yeah. I don't have a good answer, Avi. I will say that for me, part of the answer is something that connects to awe-inspiring, majorly awe-inspiring. And, and sorry, I mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Goosebump-inducing, yeah. awe-inspiring. So what kinds of things are awe-inspiring? What makes something awe-inspiring? And for me, Part uh, when I've experienced this, part of it has been uh, a realization of my 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 relative insignificance as a as one human in a very large, amazing world, like being in the Canadian Rockies. And thinking that that's definitely God's land. Uh huh. 
which the psalmist would have written about, no doubt, had David Hamelech lived in the Canadian Rockies. But because he lived where he lived, he wrote about the things that he saw, you know, the the birds nesting in the trees and the crashing waters and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, okay. So um, your, I can't remember what word you used, insignificance or finitude, right, implies the other, the, the opposite of that, which is something of much vaster significance or I'll use another word. I, I hate to, to, you know, add a hard to understand word just to explain another hard to understand word. But let's say transcendence, which mm-hmm. means very, very far or ultimately beyond. Mm-hmm. Okay, something beyond uh, my own individual limited experience. Okay, so I'm I'm changing a little bit what you said, but I'm reflecting on what you said. Other thoughts? Hey, Larry, are you listening? I don't know if he's listening. I was going to ask Larry what a, what someone who defines themselves as a relative skeptic um, would define as holy. Uh, but I don't want to put him on the spot there. Meyer, you unmuted. I was thinking, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I was thinking Am Kadosh is essentially circumscribed in the service of God, one might argue. Yeah. And the awe-inspiring, one might be able to define um, you say transcendent, we could put it in religious terms and call it godly. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. But then I, I, I just want to argue with you because then we're being a little too yeah. circular, right? We're saying God is holy, and what I mean by holy is transcendently godly. But but we may not be able to escape that trap. Okay. So we we've mentioned so far. Um, uh, a few aspects, uh, right? E- um, extraordinarily different, uh, moral, transcendent, awe-inspiring. Terry? One other measure for me, again, as I said before, the, I, I, gra- I grapple with this, and this is not great, but I, when I come across this feeling... I usually feel humbled and um, gratitude, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So I want to point out that we're talking about various things that um, uh, whether or not we want to say things do or do not have intrinsic holiness or they're only holy because we experience them as holy um in much of the things that people have said there is something implied about the person's perception meaning not necessarily it's holy because we attribute holiness to it but rather a crucial part of our experience of holiness is that we have an experience of it okay we experience it in a particular way uniquely different transcendent awe-inspiring, supremely moral, right? Most of these things that we're saying do imply that there is a perceiver, right? There is someone on the receiving end of experiencing this holiness, right? So, um, and again, this is circular. You could say there could be something supremely different, 
moral, awe-inspiring. And if there was no one there to see it, hear it, or think about it, or experience it, um, what would that mean? I guess that would mean it might be holy, but we wouldn't experience it as holy, because by definition, we wouldn't be there to experience it. Uh, God says to Moses from the bush in the story of Sacred Shemot, right, uh, take your feet off because this is holy ground. So I guess if Moses weren't there, maybe it would still be holy ground. Um, and would that matter to any human if there is no human there to experience it? Right. So the question is, is holiness there and intrinsic waiting to be found or discovered or experienced by human beings? Of course, we can only talk about things we experience anyway. We can't talk about things we don't experience. Right. Rambam said, um, you know, if God decided not to create the universe, the universe wouldn't exist. None of this would exist. But God would still exist. Right. And what what would that mean to us? I don't know that that would mean anything if we didn't exist, right? Because we wouldn't be around to think about it or perceive it or experience it. So we're talking about our experience of holiness. Um, and so far, no one has said, I think, uh, ju- no one just did the little side shuffle to say sacred. You could have said that, which just is just substituting one word for another word. Okay a little bit like using the word godly, okay? Um, so we're talking about things uh, or a category of uniquely different, awe-inspiring, moral. There's one other thing that I forgot. Um, so, uh, and and could there be more than one thing in that category? Like, could there be more place in the more places in the world? that are holy, more places than one, maybe. Could there be more experiences than only one experience in the world that's holy? Maybe. Now, that, of course, implies the question, could there be more things extremely beyond unique and awe-inspiring and godly than one being? So Judaism says no. Paganism says yes, right? Right. So the pagans saw holiness, whatever that means, um, in all sorts of guises. Right. Whereas Judaism said, no, those are actually all manifestations of one holiness. The experience of them as being separate is an illusion. Right. Thinking that the power and awe-inspiringness between the rain that's behind the rain and the power and awe-inspiringness behind that things grow from the earth may look like they're separate things, but they're actually manifestations of one thing, right? That's captured in the nice midrash we all learned in Hebrew school about uh, Abraham, right? And how he came to monotheism, right? He saw the sun, the sun must be the God. Then he saw the sun went down, the moon came up and it says that, okay, the moon must be the God because it pushed the sun away. Then he saw the stars. Then the sun came up again. He realized there must be something beyond all that. It's a very nice midrashic way that we all learned, right, about uh, uh, how monotheism came to be beyond paganism. Right? So, but I just want to go on record as saying, 
you know, if you're a pagan, you would say like, well, there could be more. What just as there's more one place on earth that's holy, there's not only one place that's holy. Um, there could be more than one deity that's holy, more than one godliness. Okay. Um, Michael Harris, yes. I tend to think of holiness and in, just intellectually, and my my thought of it was very similar to Joanna's meaning separation, God being separate from us on a different plane, some uh, something we can't uh, uh, physically be with, that, but only intellectually. So I can't say that I've had any experience that I would consider to be holy. But given Terry's uh, definition, where she included getting goosebumps from, I've had a similar experience. I, I, I didn't come away saying, oh, this was holy. It just, it just, it just shocked me. And that was, uh, I was in uh, Jerusalem visiting my family uh, at Sukkot. And uh, Shacharit one morning, of course, we were in the sukkah, and we were right up front. And in Jerusalem, maybe all of Israel, I don't know, they, they duchen every day. Uh, so when it came time for duchenim. Pardon me, which means, I just want to interrupt, which means giving the priestly kohanim go up and do the priestly blessing in the repetition of the Amidah, duchenim, go on. Okay, so the the Kohanim squeezed up front in front of us. In fact, we had to move back a bit to make room for them. And they started the the Duchenin. Of course, the talus is over the head. The arms are outstretched, and they're going back and forth. And we were being, at least I was being whipped with the tzitzit. You know, the the, the one Kohen practically had his arms over my head. And I got this unbelievable feeling. I don't know. It was like electricity shot through me. And, and I was just stunned by it. And I, I never, never did come to a conclusion of what, what made that happen, why I felt that way or what that feeling meant. But I had that experience and uh, you know, okay. maybe that Very was, maybe yeah. that was holiness. I don't Thank know. Thank you. Very interesting. Right. And, and some of what you say, your, the question you raise, I want to say is, um, r- raises the question of what is someone's framework of conceptual framework and vocabulary, right? So some people would stand in the Canadian Rockies and they would say, oh, (laughs) awe-inspiring nature. It's amazing. And other people might see the same thing and actually have the same subjective experience. And they might say, uh, the universe, it's amazing. And other people might have that same experience and they would say, so godly, right? So one interesting question is, are those all, are those just different framings of the same experience, which we have in general in the modern world, you know, become more secularly oriented, right? So we say things like nature, it's just incredible, right? As opposed to, again, you look at some of the Psalms where it's clear that the author said, look at nature. Wow. God is so incredible. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different kind of conceptual framework. And the question is, is it actually a different experience or is it just a a different labeling of the same experience? Just want to raise that question. Yeah. People have this before Joanna. One more thing. So I'm saying, obviously, people have this sort of thing around um, birth, 
mm-hmm. right? Births. Um, also, Lahavdil around death. Mm-hmm. Okay, these are things that easily uh, take us to places of um, transcendence, separateness from regular day-to-day experience. Uh, again, transcendence. What does transcendence means? It means I don't know what it means, but an awareness of things beyond me and beyond regular daily experience and consciousness. I don't know. Maybe that's one definition of transcendence. Joanna. Um, I used to love walking to shul with my youngest son on Shabbat mornings when he was really young. There was something in him about just a Shabbat morning um, and our shul was right next to the playground that we might walk to on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And these never conversations never happened on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Uh-huh. But on, on Shabbat morning, we'd be walking to shul and he would be apt to say something like, I love the way God made it smell like rain today. So mm-hmm. not only was he noticing what was ha- the beautiful flower or that it's he used to love that, that it smelled like rain was a particular favorite. But often things like that, a beautiful flower or that, you know, spring had just arrived and the trees were in bloom for the first time or whatever he would notice. A, that he was noticing it and that he often, often, often put it in the context of God and the divine. And, um, you know, so I, I think we set ourselves up. We try to set ourselves up for those holy moments, right? Like that's one of the reasons we separate out Shabbat time so that right. we can have create time and space for more of an awareness of the holy. Yes. And it's interesting that he did that as a kid. And then one might reflect and think, okay, and if we raised people educationally a particular kind of way, that might, that framing of it and subjective experience of it might stay with them lifelong. Um, And if we, when I say we, I don't necessarily mean parents. I mean schooling, right? The world talks about it a different way. Then we beat that out of them, right? Um, because for for whatever reasons, right? For whatever for whatever reasons that we don't continue to, you know, it's a very interesting question. What is it that nurtures that kind of experience subjectively? So obviously, some of it is the the child, right? But what are the conditions that that allow the child, that encourage the child to express that. And then where does that go? Like, you know, how many bar mitzvah kids talk like that? How many teenagers talk like that? How many adults talk like that? Where did that go? Yeah. And I I just want to say one more thing. And where did that go that then adults say, I need to take some class in spiritual something or other because I want to be more spiritual, right? So many of us had that five-year-old in us and, and like, where did that go? What happened to that? Right. It's interesting, by the way, because people talk about like, you know, uh, material explanations and science, et cetera. But I want to say like, oh, it's interesting. David HaMelech, the psalmist, he never lost that, 
Right. And just as an interesting PS to your question about, you know, the classes we take as adults, the adults who seek that spirituality and holiness outside of Judaism, even. Right. So it's one thing, you know, you take the class within Judaism, but then the ones who say, I can't find it here. So I need a little bit of Buddhism in my life or your yeah. or pick yeah. your right. flavor. Right. I was I was once at a shul and I was talking to someone there and I was talking about the style of davening there. Um, and how I didn't like the style of davening because it did not give me contemplative time to be thoughtful and experience this sort of thing. Um, uh, that the show is lovely for the things that it does, but I really miss out on the things that it doesn't do that I thought. Should. And the person said to me, well, I don't come here for that. You know, I have my, like, I have my yoga class for that. <laughs> and I thought, like, oh, uh, okay. But uh, why, why should you have to go to yoga class for that. Okay. Again, um, uh, the, the Mishnah, is it the Mishnah, I think, right, who says that um, the, the Hasidim Rishonim, the pious men of old, they would contemplate for an hour before they would start the Amidah. They didn't, so they didn't go to yoga class. What, right? Um, they brought their contemplative practice into davening. They felt their contemplative practice was part of davening. They didn't separate that out. So yes, good point, Joanna. Michael, were you going to say something? Yes, I was going to comment on Joanna's story. And it reminded me of, you know, in terms of children uh, and their comments, uh, for those of you who remember Art Ligfletter, he had one of his probably many books was a book of letters from children to God. And one of the letters was from a little girl who said, that I, I didn't know that red and blue and pink and orange went well together until I saw the sunset you made tonight. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Nice. Nice. Right. So we say children write letters to God, and that's something that adults stop doing, although maybe in the Amidah you're actually supposed to be doing that. And then we have, uh, certainly within the Jewish tradition, contemplative practices, like I'm just popping into my like Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, who says you're supposed to go out into the forest and talk to God by yourself. Anyone know what it's called in Hasidus? It's called Hit Bodidut. It's a part of Hasidic practice, which is Hit Bodidut, which means, which literally in modern Hebrew kind of means to make oneself alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it basically means having an experience of being alone away from the matting crowd, as it were, so that you can be one-on-one with God, right? We would call it in contemporary spiritualese, a contemplative practice, right? Um, Okay, we're running over. I think I'm going to stop here. Um, what we did, we talked about God. We, we, so we might have talked about what it means for something to be holy. Next week, I thought we'd finish up this week, but we didn't. Um, cause we allowed some time to be thoughtful. So next week we'll talk about, so what does it mean when we say God is holy? Your name is holy and we are holy, right? How do those all come together in that bracha? Okay. So, uh, everyone have a, have a, a day of experiencing holiness. Be healthy, be well, stay healthy, and God willing, see you all next Tuesday.
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.